Okay, so we are talking about Roman Catholicism. This is going to be a doctrinal study. I put doctrinal study on there for a reason. Oftentimes when you do something like this, people think it's going to be a Catholic bashing session, and that's not what we're doing. I want to show you what Rome believes from their own writings. So this is going to be a lot of quotations. I want you to hear it from them. There are two streams of Protestants, two different kinds of Protestants. There's one group that says Roman Catholics are Christians. They talk about Jesus. They believe in the cross. They have an orthodox view of the Trinity. Therefore, we should embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's no need to evangelize. And that group does not evangelize their Roman Catholic family members and friends. The second group says Roman Catholicism does not have the true gospel. They do not know Jesus Christ. They do not preach a true gospel, and therefore, the people in the Roman Catholic Church are not Christians, and your job is not to hate them. Your job is to love them by giving them the gospel. And I hope that at the end of this class, at the end of the four weeks, you will have a desire to evangelize your Roman Catholic family members, your friends, your neighbors, wherever they are. Roman Catholics make up 40% of the greater San Antonio area. That's 2 million people. If they don't have the gospel and you don't give it to them, that's not called love. Here's what we're going to cover. We're going to go over four things. Today we're going to talk about the issue of authority. If you want to understand Rome, you have to understand where they view their authority coming from. This was central in the Reformation. Secondly, we're going to talk about Mary. When you hear what they say about Mary, you'll know what they believe about God the Father, about Jesus Christ, and about his love and mercy. Then we're going to look at the sacraments. There are seven of them. Why does the Catholic Catechism say sacraments are necessary for salvation? And what is the role of faith in those sacraments? How can you have a religion that says you're saved by faith, but then tell you you have to participate in sacraments? And then finally, we're going to look at one of those sacraments. We're going to look at the Eucharist. I was raised Roman Catholic. Most of my family is Roman Catholic. What I found when I study this shocks me. You don't want to miss that class. Today we're on authority. All right, here's a trick question. Some of you may not be able to read this in the back. Roma locuta est causa finita est. Anybody know what that means? Anyone here know Latin? No? You're close. Something like that. Yeah, Rome has spoken... And that settles it. Rome has spoken, and that settles it. And I just want you to have that in your mind as we go through this class, because you'll see why we put that on there. I didn't make up that phrase. That was from a Roman Catholic, not me. Now, in order to talk about Roman Catholicism, we need to first talk about their authorities. What do they view as being authoritative? The first thing they view as authoritative is this book, The Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's updated every couple of decades. This is the authoritative text when it comes to Roman Catholicism. You're going to hear a lot from this text. Protestants think of a catechism and you think of question and answer. That's not what this is. This is more like a systematic theology. If a Roman Catholic wants to know what to believe, they go here. This is the authority. This is actually the, not the most recent update. I have the recent update on Kindle. All right. The other authority that they have are councils. You need to understand councils are considered infallible, which means they are irreformable. They can never be changed, which means all of these councils are still authoritative. The first one is the Council of Trent in the 1550s. 1550s is me being lazy. It was really like 1540 to 1560-something, okay? But on the quiz, if you just say 1550s, you're good to go, okay? What you need to know about the Council of Trent is the Council of Trent was in response to the Reformation. The Reformers came out and were criticizing Rome. Rome dug its heels in, wrote out everything they believe, and anathematized everybody who disagreed. That's the Council of Trent. The second one you need to know about is Vatican I. Vatican I was in the 1870s. Again, me being lazy. It was actually longer than that. Vatican I is where we get papal infallibility. This is where that doctrine was formulated and finally expressed as being de fide, or of the faith. 
Finally, there is Vatican II in the 1960s. Vatican II changed the face of Rome. You, the Protestant, went from being a heretic and a schismatic to being a disenfranchised brethren. The Mass went from Latin to the common vernacular. The biggest change in Vatican II was they took a very inclusive view. Rome used to say that outside of the Roman Church, there is no salvation. After Vatican II, Rome says Jews and Muslims are going to heaven. Drastic change for a church that says it has believed and teaches the exact same thing the whole time. That's a good question. And the honest answer is, I don't have an answer other than when you read Roman Catholic theology, it seems like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And it gets very confusing. And that's not me being mean to them. That's just the reality. They will say one thing here, and then they will say they're affirming it here, but they actually deny it. It's kind of hard to track. So just understand, all three of these are considered authoritative, and they say they have changed nothing. And when you read Vatican II, Vatican II even says, we affirm and we do not change anything in the Council of Trent. So Council of Trent is still valid. If you want to understand their, their view of authority, though, you also need to understand the Catholic hierarchy. The Catholic hierarchy is the skeleton on which they hang the meat of theology. It starts at the bottom with a priest. In their terminology, priests are pastors of local churches, but the pastor of these churches doesn't preach scripture. His primary job is to administer sacraments. We'll talk about sacraments in two weeks. Above the priest, by the way, that's Father Morris. Above the priest is a group of men called bishops. You'll recognize them because they wear purple. Bishops oversee priests. They oversee what's called a diocese, which is a group of churches in a region. The bishop you see here is retired Bishop Tom Flanagan. He made it into this presentation for two reasons. One, he was a bishop here in San Antonio. And two, when I was a child, I knew him as Father Flanagan. That was my parish priest. Out of the group of bishops comes another group of men that you really know well. They're called cardinals. I said they came out of the group of bishops. The reality is cardinals theologically are bishops. When you read Roman Catholic theology, you will not see a whole lot said about cardinals because the theology that applies to the guys in purple also applies to the guys in red. So as we talk about bishops today, just understand I'm talking about both of these. I'm talking about the guys in purple and in red. What makes the cardinal unique? He has been selected by the pope to serve as the pope's personal advisor. And there's probably two to three hundred of these guys. So they have a little bit more prominence, they have a little more institutional authority, but the theology attached to them is the exact same as with the bishops. They also get to elect the new pope, and they usually do that from amongst themselves. The final one is the guy you know, there's Pope Francis, he's at the head. He is considered the head of the Roman Catholic Church, the vicar of Christ, the bishop of Rome. He is also considered a bishop, but he is in a unique position, and we're going to talk a lot about his authority today. We're not going to focus too much on the priests today, so say goodbye. We're going to focus on those three. We're going to start at the bottom. I'm going to give you a baseline idea of their their authority, and then we're going to spend a great deal of time on the Pope. Bishops, the guys in purple, the guys in red, view themselves as the successors of the apostles. Please know, I did not say they view themselves as apostles. I I know the New Apostolic Reformation says they're apostles today. Even Rome is not that heretical. These guys are not apostles. They don't view themselves as apostles. They are the successors of the apostles. The college of bishops, the group, is the successor of the college of apostles, the group of them. It's not like, you know, Bishop Flanagan follows after Apostle Andrew. No, it's the group succeeds the group. Now, as the successors, they have received or inherited three powers three realms of authority. The first one is a teaching authority. That is, they have the authority to interpret divine revelation. Only the bishops of Rome 
have the authority to interpret divine revelation. You don't have that authority. Pastor doesn't have that authority. I don't have that authority. John MacArthur doesn't have that authority. Only the bishops of Rome have the authority to tell you what is divine revelation and what it means. No one else. Secondly, they have a sanctifying power. That is, they have the power to sanctify men in the truth. This, again, is not done primarily through preaching scripture. This is done through ordaining bishops and priests who then go and administer sacraments. Sanctification, justification occurs via a sacrament. The bishops are the ones who have the authority to minister those sacraments. Finally, they have a ruling power. That is, they have the authority to govern and to make decisions within the church. These are the three powers, the three areas of authority given to bishops because they are the successors of the apostles. Vatican II, council from the 1960s, said the apostles left as their successors the bishops handing on their own teaching function to them. This was a one-for-one swap. The apostles turned to the, the bishops of the Catholic Church and handed on that authority, so they say. The Catholic Catechism, the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Again, the authority is invested in the office of the bishop, and only the bishops have the authority to teach, to interpret, and to define what is divine revelation. That's very important. I'm going to keep coming back to that all morning. The authority is invested in the office, not in his ability to rightly divide the word of God. Now, notice at the bottom it says, the ones who are in communion with the Bishop of Rome. The authority is granted to them by God through the apostles, but that authority is mediated to them through the apostle Peter, who they claim was the very first pope. And they claim he was given what is known as the primacy, which is a nice way of saying Jesus made Peter the very first pope and gave him supreme authority in the church. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to look at how they view this. As you do that, notice the Catholic Catechism, the Pope, Bishop of Rome, they think Peter was the very first Bishop of Rome, and successor of Peter. Peter supposedly took his authority as the new Pope, as the person holding the primacy, and he passed it on to the next Bishop, and that line of succession continues today, and Pope Francis gets his authority from this apostolic succession going back to Peter which, if you study church history, doesn't actually exist. But that's what they claim. Vatican I. We therefore teach and declare that according to the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God, promised and given to blessed Peter the Apostle by Christ the Lord. I'm going to give you the Roman Catholic interpretation of Matthew 16. This is the Roman Catholic interpretation, not mine. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here's the Roman Catholic view of this. If you go up to verse... 13, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? They respond in verse 14. They give this list of people that they think he might be. And then verse 15, Jesus turns to his disciples. Notice there it says, he said to them, the group of the apostles, but who do you say that I am? He's speaking to the entire group. But who is it who answers? 
Who is it who gives the reply? It's Peter. Peter speaks up. Peter takes a leadership role. Again, this is the Catholic interpretation. Peter takes a leadership role. Peter steps out and speaks for the rest of the apostles. And he answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice what Jesus says to him. He says that Peter received divine revelation. It was revelation the other apostles did not receive. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter is a leader of the apostles. He speaks for the apostles. He receives revelation the other apostles do not receive. Verse 18, I also say to you, that you are Peter. Carl Keating likes to point out, if Jesus was speaking to all of the apostles here, it would be kind of silly. Why would he look at John and say, I say to you that you are Peter? John would look at him and go, no, I'm not. He's talking to Peter. And he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, again, Carl Keating argues that upon this rock must refer to Peter because Peter's the closest noun. And therefore, Peter is the rock of the church. And upon this rock, Jesus will build his church. All the authority of the church rests on Peter. Peter is the primary, the first apostle. He is given a leadership role. He is receiving divine revelation. And he is going to be granted supreme authority. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, the, the term for rock and the term for Peter are the same word in a different form. So he, there is a little word play going on there. Um, Peter is going to give, be given special authority. I want to read to you the Catholic Catechism real quick. The office of binding and loosing which was given to Peter was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. The pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. Look at verse 19. 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That you is the same singular pronoun that you saw in verse 18. And so Catholics argue, again, he is speaking directly to Peter and only to Peter. And it is to Peter and only to Peter that Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And they view this as a grant of supreme authority in the church. And then they move on and say, okay, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. Peter has the power to forgive people. And it's on Peter's decree that people can be forgiven. That's the Roman Catholic interpretation. I will give a response to that, by the way. Now, this grant of authority is not minor. It's not a small thing. The Catholic Catechism. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, another way of saying the representative of Christ on earth, and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can exercise unhindered. That grant of the keys to the Pope or to Peter, in their view, means he has full, supreme authority in the church, and he can exercise that authority unhindered. What does that really mean, though? Doesn't he have to get some other people's approval first? I mean, doesn't he have to check with all the bishops? Or maybe his personal advisors, the cardinals, he has to check with them. Dr. Ludwig Ott, which, by the way, if you want a good systematic theology, fundamentals of Catholic dogma, Dr. Ludwig Ott says this, Thus, the Pope can rule independently on any matter which comes under the sphere of the church's jurisdiction without the concurrence of the other bishops or the rest of the church. If it's within the jurisdiction of the church, the Pope has the authority to rule on it. He does not need anyone else's approval. He does not need anyone else's opinion. He can make the decision on his own. And recently, you've seen this. Pope Francis decided we're going to change the Lord's Prayer. Death penalty... Now sinful. He can change it. Now when the Pope issues a proclamation or a decree, there is a teaching that says the Pope 
is infallible. This came in 1870. Now, I'm going to apologize to you in advance because I'm about to put a really long quote on the screen, and then I'm going to do something even worse. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm sorry. Two reasons. I'm going to read it to you. One, because there's people in the back, and you may not be able to read the slide. Two, there are people listening to this on a recording, and they can't see the slide. But the other reason I'm doing it this way is because I want you to see this teaching in context. Protestants hear the Pope is infallible, and then they listen to something the current Pope says, and they're like, see, he's not infallible. And we distort what they actually say about this. They have narrowly defined it. If it was easy as the Pope can never be wrong, they wouldn't need a paragraph that long, okay? So let me read this, and then we'll break it down. We teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, is, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, possessed of that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer willed that his church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith or morals. First, I want you to note, divinely revealed in 1870. We'll come back to that. Let's define what we mean by infallibility. Infallibility, Dr. Ludwig Ott provides a definition. He says, infallibility is the impossibility of falling into error. And again, this is where Protestants look at what Pope Francis says and go, uh, no, it, it can't be. But this only applies when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra. And they define what that means. It literally means out of his chair. Or when he speaks as what they say here, that is when in discharge of his office as pastor and teacher of all Christians. When he is exercising his authority as the Pope, they give two conditions for when a statement is considered infallible. The first one is the statement must be for all Christians. It must be a doctrine to be believed by the universal church. If Pope Francis came to San Antonio, went to one of the Catholic churches and says, you know, you guys really need more tacos at the end of Mass, that's not an infallible statement because it only applies to that one church. It is not for all Christians. The second condition that must be met is that it must be regarding faith or morals. So him teaching on tacos doesn't count. Faith are religious doctrines that are required to believe, that are required for you to believe. Morals are the behaviors that come out of those beliefs. So if he's teaching on tacos, no good. But if he's teaching on, let's say, the nature of Christ, that applies. So the two conditions, it must be for the universal church, and it must be regarding faith or morals. And when it's infallible, there's a logical consequence to this. There's a semicolon at the end of that paragraph. Here's what comes next in Vatican I. And that, therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves, and not from the consent of the church, irreformable. They cannot be changed, they cannot be altered, they cannot be rescinded, they are perfect, they are guided by the Holy Spirit, you cannot change them. Just like the councils. And you might ask, well, okay, so he's infallible when he meets these two conditions. Well, how often has he made an infallible statement? Well, there's no infallible list of infallible statements, so you can't actually know. There's no authoritative source that will tell you how many times and when the Pope has spoken infallibly. So I had to go look elsewhere, and I can only find two statements that have been unofficially recognized as being infallible. Only two. One in 1854 by Pope Pius IX, one in 1950 by Pope Pius XII. Both of them deal with Mary. We'll talk about her next week. So you'll, you'll figure out what these are next week. And there's good reason they don't want to give us a list. If you want some fun research today when you go home, look up Pope Honorius I and his teaching on the nature of Christ. His teaching was, according to their definition, should have been infallible. Yet in 680, 
The third council of Constantinople, the infallible council, declared the infallible pope to be a heretic for that teaching. There's a good reason they don't want to have a list. But that's okay, because when he's not infallible, when he's not speaking infallibly, that means I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to obey him. Not really. Vatican II. The religious assent of will and intellect is to be given in a special way to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra, that is, when he's not speaking infallibly. You are still required to listen to him. You're still required to obey. Question, why? Because he has the teaching authority. He is the bishop of Rome. He has been given the authority, not you. He has the authority and the ability to interpret divine revelation. You don't. And if you're a Catholic, you're supposed to accept what he says because he has the authentic teaching authority as the Pope. The authority is invested in the office, not in his ability to actually rightly divide the word. If someone gets up in the pulpit at this church and they start telling you a whole bunch of stuff that you must believe and must do, but it's not in scripture, are you required to listen? No. But if he gets up and rightly divides the word of God and he gives the message of God, should you listen? In Rome, no. You don't have the authority to interpret divine revelation, so you can't tell him he's wrong. Let's get a biblical response. First, I want to deal with this idea that there are certain people in the church that when they speak, we just need to listen. We just need to be quiet and listen to what they say, and what they say goes. Remember in Acts, Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he's preaching and teaching in Thessalonica, and there were these noble Bereans that every time Paul spoke, they just closed the scriptures, sat there, and just took in everything he said and said, you know what, he's an apostle, he has authority from Christ, you know, he's been with Jesus for three years, they just believed everything he said. Right? Acts 17.11, they were more noble-minded for what reason? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things be true. They didn't have the apostolic authority. That implies that, one, they can interpret divine revelation, that they can rightly divide the word of God. That also says even Paul was not immune to criticism. He wasn't immune to someone checking what he's saying. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to just put our minds in a passive state and just accept what we're being taught. We're called to be discerning. We're called to rightly divide the word. We're called to be on the lookout for false prophets and false teachers. Well, how in the world are you going to know a false teacher if you're just supposed to be passive and just accept what they say? Now let's go back to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we're not going to read through the whole thing again, but we're going to hit the high points. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The special part of this, what makes this statement unique, is not the fact that Peter called him the son of God. Demons had been calling Jesus the son of God for a while. Also, in John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 14, verse 31, uh, excuse me, verse 33, the people on the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly the son of God, or God's son. So that's not a new statement. They understood this. They knew this. What was new here is the statement, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the coming king. That was the new part. That's what was shocking about his statement. And this is a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel because Matthew is trying to prove that Jesus is the only one who qualifies as the promised king. And so for Peter to come out and say, you are the Christ, that's big news. That's a big deal. And Jesus affirms him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now, I don't really have a problem if someone wants to say that's divine revelation, because after all, it is Peter, and he was an apostle, and these guys were receiving divine revelation. But to say this makes Peter unique in the church, the universal church, I think is misguided. And it's misguided because who here has not affirmed that statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Anybody? All of us have affirmed that. 
You can't be a Christian and deny that. So the same illumination that happened in Peter's heart has to happen in the hearts of every believer in history. This doesn't make Peter unique in universal history. It does make him special in the sense he's the first one we have recorded to say it. But it doesn't give him some unique status. And it's a, it's a confession that all of the disciples would eventually make. And so Jesus says, blessed are you. The Father revealed this to you. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. And here I will affirm what Carl Keating said. Those pronouns, the you there, I say to you, singular, that you, singular, are Peter. He's talking to Peter. Carl Keating said, uh, by the way, Carl Keating, in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, you and I would be the fundamentalist. He said that Protestants don't want to affirm that he's talking to Peter here because the only logical conclusion is if he's talking to Peter, you have to accept the papacy. So he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, Carl Keating again says, upon this rock has to be Peter. Peter must be the rock of the church because it's the only noun, it's the closest noun to it. The problem is Carl Keating is talking about the English. And he's using an English text to make that. But when you go back into the Greek text, upon this rock could refer to Peter. And it also could refer to verse 16 in Peter's confession. And there are faithful men who disagree on that. Some of them say it's Peter. Some of them say it's the confession. Let me give you both. If you want to say the rock is Peter, Tertullian made that argument. And the Catholics will point to Tertullian and they'll say, look, he says the rock is Peter. But if you keep reading what he said, he said Peter is the rock through which the church would be built. And he specifically linked that to the preaching of Peter in Acts 3. And so in that view, Peter is the rock in the sense that Peter, through his preaching, helped found the church. The second view held by a lot of the reformers says that upon this rock refers back to Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that view, it's the confession upon which the church will be built. I personally tend more to the second one because I think through the rock kind of messes up the metaphor. But neither one of them is heretical. And neither one of them requires you to believe that there's papacy. Oh, let's go back to those pronouns real quick. I say to you that you are Peter. Singular. Verse 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Accept the Roman Catholic position for just a moment. He's talking only to Peter. Those pronouns are singular. You know what that means? The papacy cannot be true. The papacy is dependent upon a line of succession from Peter where that authority is passed down. If those pronouns are singular, Jesus is speaking only to Peter and not to his successors. It's only Peter. Not Pope Francis. Those are singular. Yeah. In English, we can say you or we can say y'all, but that's Texas, so, okay? But if, even if you affirm their position, it's Peter. It's only Peter. Now, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys, illustrative of great power or some form of authority. And they say this is a grant of special authority only to Peter and his successors. Again, the successors are not in the text. But there's this special grant of authority. Problem. If you keep reading, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Period. Right? It's a semicolon. And whatever you bind on earth. The conjunction there. That's important. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are defined here as the power of binding and loosing. It's the same authority that was granted in chapter 18, verse 18, and it was granted to all of the apostles because the pronouns there are plural. 
the keys of the kingdom of heaven being given to Peter is not some special grant only to Peter. It's a grant of authority granted to the entire church. And if you go to chapter 18, verse 18, it's in the context of church discipline. And the Catholic Church would have you believe that this means that when Peter speaks, or the Pope speaks, God in heaven goes, hmm, yeah, that's a good idea. And he applauds. But just look at either Matthew 18, 18, or Matthew 16, uh, 19, whichever one you want. Again, I say to you that if, uh, sorry, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I'm going to do this in the, in the English so it's easier. Whatever you bind, present tense, shall have been bound in heaven. Past tense. In the context of Matthew 18, the state, what, what he's saying here is when you exercise church discipline according to Scripture, and the church makes a decision in a church discipline case to, let's say, excommunicate a member, it's not that the church makes that decision and God thinks about it and says, oh, I agree. What he's saying is, when the church makes that decision, the church is merely affirming what God in heaven had already said. Doesn't sound like a universal grant of authority, does it? It is a form of authority, but just not the kind they're referring to. The fact of the matter is, there is no biblical basis for the papacy. And I know there's some Catholics who are going to listen to this and say, well, you're a Protestant. Of course you would say that. That's your interpretation, and it doesn't matter because you don't have the authority. Okay. How about we listen to Father Richard P. McBrien, who has this massive tome called Catholicism. He examined the evidence of Peter being the first pope and the first bishop of Rome. Here's what he said. Whether he, Peter, actually served the church of Rome as bishop cannot be known through the evidence at hand. And from the New Testament record alone, we have no basis for positing a line of succession from Peter through subsequent bishops of Rome. So this this priest looks into the New Testament for the succession of bishops from Peter down to the current pope, and he says, we don't have any evidence for it. I know. But yet he wrote a whole book. But again, both sides of the mouth. Okay? So he looks at it and he says, one, in history we have no evidence that Peter was even the first bishop of Rome. And two, when we look at just the New Testament, we have no way to say that there's any line of succession from Peter. But what about those keys? What about that grant of authority? Father McBrien continues, As for the conferral of power, of the power of the keys, this suggests an imposing measure of authority, given the symbolism of the keys. He's giving you his interpretation of keys. And yet, special authority over others is not clearly attested. Rather, in the Acts of the Apostles, Peter is presented as consulting with the apostles and even being sent by them. The priest is acknowledging the reality that his theology doesn't match what Scripture says. He looks at those keys and says, this is a universal grant of authority, and then he looks in the rest of Scripture to prove it, and he can't find any evidence for it. In fact, he sees just the opposite. Because in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, I exhort you as your pope. Oh, wait, no, your fellow elder. He didn't view himself as being special. And when Paul wrote to Peter, in the, I'm sorry, when Paul wrote to the, book, to the Roman church, in the book of Romans, he's writing to the church where Peter was supposedly the very first pope, and he doesn't even mention him. So how do they come to this? What does the Father suggest we do to come to the papacy? Here's what he says. The question, therefore, to be posed on the basis of an investigation of the New Testament is whether the subsequent post-biblical development of the Petrine office is, in fact, consistent with the thrust of the New Testament. Take our Petrine doctrine throughout church history, take the doctrine of the papacy, figure out what it was in the church history, go back into the New Testament and read it back into the New Testament and see if it fits with a thrust. Is that biblical? I would say if you 
sense that we want to use the Bible to uh, say what what the Catholic Church is saying. Yeah. He wants us to read it into it from the from church history. It's a good point. We're going to answer that in a minute. He said, are they using their doctrine as a way to interpret the Bible, or are they using the Bible as a way to interpret their doctrine? We'll answer that in just a minute. I have a quote just on that. Okay, we've been talking about this teaching authority. The teaching authority of the bishops and the pope are exercised, utilized, primarily through what is known as the magisterium. Magisterium is a Latin word which means master. I thought that was interesting. The magisterium is the pope and the bishops in communion with him. Remember when we talk about bishops, we're talking about the guys in purple, the guys in red. That's the magisterium. What is the job of the magisterium? The job of the magisterium is to define dogmas, obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. The job of the pope and the bishops in communion with him is to define dogma, Dogma is religious teaching that you are required to believe that if you deny, you are a heretic. Their job is to define it, and by their defining it, once they give it, the Christian people are obliged to an irrevocable adherence of faith. They must believe it. Vatican II. But when the Roman pontiff or the body of bishops together with him define a decision by which all are obliged to abide and to which all must conform, this revelation, as written or as handed down in tradition, is transmitted in its entirety through the lawful succession of the bishops and in the first place through the care of the Roman pontiff himself. Notice, when the church, when the magisterium defines a doctrine, it is considered to be divine revelation. Not because you can go back in history and trace it out in history. It's divine revelation because they have the apostolic authority and they define what is and is not divine revelation. Secondly, also notice, through the lawful succession of the bishops, again, the authority is in the office, not in their ability to prove the doctrine actually came from the apostles. They don't have to go back in church history and trace out the doctrine and prove that the people in the early church believed it. It came from the bishops who have the teaching authority. Therefore, it is divine revelation. Now, this divine revelation that they have been guarding and protecting, they refer to as a sacred deposit of faith. And they say that divine revelation has been handed down, this is important, handed down in two ways. The first in a written form, or scripture, and the second in an unwritten form, or through oral revelation. We'll talk about both. First, Catholics have a high view of Scripture. It's really easy to say, well, Catholics don't like Scripture. They don't like the Bible. But then Vatican II says this, for ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Amen. Yes. Right. They even said this in the Catholic Catechism, yet this magisterium is not superior to the Word of God, but is its servant. So the Pope and the bishops in communion with him are servants to the word of God. And you're like, okay, we can, we can agree on that. And then you look at what Pope Pius XII wrote in 1950 in a document entitled Humani Generis. This is your question. Here's what he said. Hence our predecessor, Pius IX, teaching that the most noble office of theology is to show how a doctrine defined by the church is contained in the sources of of revelation. Define our doctrine. Once we've defined our doctrine, go into the sources of revelation and prove how it's there. It's the exact opposite of what it should be. They should be in revelation to discern their doctrine. And also notice sources of revelation. We have one source of revelation in this church. It's the Bible. They don't. They have two sources. They have the, the Bible plus. What's the other part of it? It's called tradition. 
And what they claim is that tradition is oral revelation given by Jesus or by the Holy Spirit to the apostles that was then passed on to the succession of bishops. Here's what they said. Tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God. It transmits to the successors of the apostles so that they may spread it abroad by their, te- by their preaching. Notice what they said here. Tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God. Anything funny about that? Tradition is a form of revelation. Maybe this next quote will help. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. Do you see it now? When you talk to a Roman Catholic about the word of God, if they know their theology, if they know what their church teaches, they're not thinking just scripture. They're thinking tradition. It makes that whole statement about this magisterium is subject to the word of God kind of seem meaningless. Because what they just said is, this magisterium is subject to its own teachings. The Catholic Catechism. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of reverence and devotion. Let me help you with a different definition on tradition. Let me define it in a better way. They say it's oral revelation given by the apostles. There's no evidence for that anywhere. Tradition is the teaching of the magisterium. What the magisterium says is divine revelation. That is oral tradition. And what this is saying, what the Catholic Catechism is saying is, the teaching of the magisterium and scripture together should be honored with equal sentiments of reverence and devotion. You should take their teaching and hold it right up next to scripture, and the two are equal. Vatican II. The church has kept and keeps the scriptures together with tradition as the supreme rule of its faith. The teaching of the magisterium is a form of divine revelation and it is part of the supreme rule of faith for the Roman Catholic Church. They do not need to prove anything that they teach in scripture. They do not need to prove it in history. You don't have to take my word for it. Carl Keating, I showed you this book earlier. Carl Keating in his book Catholicism and Fundamentalism was teaching on the Assumption of Mary, the doctrine that says that after Mary died, she was taken bodily into heaven and she didn't underco- undergo decay. And when he got to the fundamentalist, he wanted to deal with our primary objection to the doctrine, which is, well, let's read it. Here's what he said. Still, fundamentalists ask, where is the proof from Scripture? Strictly, there is none. It was the Catholic Church that was commissioned by Christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly. The mere fact that the Church teaches the doctrine of the Assumption is something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. I don't have to prove it in Scripture. I don't have to prove it in Church history. The fact that the Church said it means you must believe it. Folks, is that Christian? Let's do a biblical response. If you're going to turn your Bible, turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2, and that'll be easier. But I'm going to put them on the screen so you have them, okay? I want to deal with this idea of tradition, that tradition that there's this body of men who's receiving divine revelation still. Uh, Just think about some of the main doctrines of Roman Catholicism. Transubstantiation wasn't officially defined until around 1200, wasn't made de fide until the 1500s in the Council of Trent. The Assumption of Mary, 1854. Uh, No, that's the Immaculate Conception of Mary, sorry. The Assumption of Mary in 1950. These are really late doctrines that the church says you must believe. And I want to find out does the Bible support this idea of some oral, unwritten tradition that comes up just years and years after Jesus? Go to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions 
which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. These are the verses Catholics will point to and say, look, there it is. There's tradition. Therefore, our tradition is just fine. Is Paul affirming the Roman Catholic idea of unwritten oral tradition? No. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He uses the word traditions here. He uses a noun. I'm going to give you the Greek word. It's the noun paradosis. It means handing over of someone to authorities to surrender, arrest, the content of instruction that it has been handed down. That's what I want you to focus on, the content of what is handed down. Paradosis or tradition is simply a teaching that is handed on from one person to the next, okay? And the noun refers to the content of what's being taught. This word is used quite a bit in scripture, but it's used mainly in a negative way by Jesus. In Matthew 15, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 15, verse 2, he says this, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? There's the word paradosis. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That's the Pharisees saying that to Jesus. Jesus responds, and he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition, for the sake of your teaching, for the sake of your paradosis? You see, the Pharisees had unwritten oral tradition that they held equal to Scripture. And they demanded that people follow their teaching with the same reverence and devotion that they followed the Scriptures. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, condemns this same kind of oral, unwritten tradition that is contrary to what God has said in His Word. There's another term He uses. It's a verb. So we just looked at the noun, let's look at the verb. It's paradidomy, and I highlighted the part that's relevant. To pass on to another what one knows of oral or written tradition, hand down, pass on, transmit, relate, or teach. This describes the act of actually teaching another person. Handing what is known on to somebody else, telling somebody else. This same word is used in 1 Corinthians 11. I'll put it on the screen. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, there's the noun, the content of teaching, just as I, paradidomy, there's the verb, as I delivered them to you. Paul commends the Corinthians and says, look, everything that I taught you, you're holding on to it. You're not letting go of it. And so the question is, where did Paul get the teaching from? Is it something that Paul came up with because he was an apostle and he had apostolic authority? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also, there's the verb, paradidomy, delivered to you. The message Paul delivered to the Corinthian church was the exact same message he received from Jesus himself. It did not start with Paul. And he would never deliver a message to the Corinthians that he did not receive directly from Jesus. He affirms this again in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. The message received was the message he delivered, and nothing else. Paul would not accept this idea that in 1854, there's some new body of revelation from a group of men that's just defining what it is. He would not accept that. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew full well what the traditions of the Pharisees were. Gerhard Kittel, who's usually kind of liberal, he got this one right on the head. This is a long quote, but it's good. For Paul, Christian teaching is tradition. And he demands that the churches should keep to it since salvation depends on it. The essential point for Paul is that it has been handed down and that it derives from the Lord. A tradition initiated by himself or others is without validity. Uh, it is no contradiction that Jesus repudiates tradition and Paul champions it. Paul's tradition agrees with Jesus' rejection, since they are both opposed to human tradition. Paul, the former Pharisee, 
did not agree with unwritten oral tradition. If you're still in 2 Thessalonians, look back at verse 6. I'm just going to read the end of that verse. And not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Jump down to verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. When Paul was with them, what did he tell them? If you're not willing to work, you don't eat. When he wrote to them, did he write something different? He wrote them the exact same message. If you don't work, you don't eat. The verbal revelation matches the written revelation. It's the same content. Scripture doesn't know anything about a secondary source of teaching outside of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. It's interesting to me, Paul didn't say, if anyone doesn't pay attention to our oral tradition, take note of that person. He never commends you to obey oral tradition. 1 Timothy 14, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. He doesn't commend him to give attention to unwritten oral revelation. When he's teaching Timothy about how to conduct himself in the church of God, he says, you give attention to the Scriptures and to teach and to preach from the Scriptures. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, how would Catholics deal with it? The problem is um, the Catholic Church claims that it is the only entity that can interpret divine revelation, but they've only given a, an, an authoritative interpretation of a handful of verses, and it's only the verses that deal with their theology and that they think prove their theology. So how they would deal with the Old Testament, nobody knows, because they won't, they won't tell us. As for the rock, there are people who say that Matthew 16, Jesus turns to him and says, I say to you that you are Peter, but upon this rock I will build my church. He plays off the word Petros. Petros. And so the, the link there seems to be it's more in connection with Peter and not of himself. He could have made a lot more clear that he was referring to himself. And none of the disciples seem to have taken it that way. Because there's no mention of Jesus anywhere in there. So... How they would deal with that, I don't know what they would say about that because they won't tell us. I, I want to end this this way. We, we kind of started here, but this is where I want to end. I started this and I said, what's the point of doing this? Why are we doing this? Why are we even talking about this? I said, there's 40% of the San Antonio population that are Roman Catholics. I want to go back to Gerhard Kittle's quote, and I just want to look at the first part of it. For Paul, Christian teaching is tradition, and he demands that the churches should keep it, since salvation depends upon it. At this church, and at other churches in the area that are like it, they're few, but they're there. Your faith is based off Scripture, and you found your faith on what Scripture says, and we can validate Scripture, we can prove Scripture is true, that we have the correct message from the apostles, and we can go right back, and we have the apostolic faith preserved in Scripture. How many of you, just by show of hands, how many of you know someone, family member, friend, neighbor, co-worker, who's Roman Catholic? Raise your hand. Okay. Your friends, your family members, your neighbors, and your co-workers 
Their salvation depends upon their understanding of divine revelation. And the divine revelation they are receiving is not from Scripture. It's not from the apostolic teaching. The divine What they're receiving is the teaching of the men in Rome. That's what they're depending upon for their salvation. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of what they teach. And I would hope that at the end of it, you would not go to your Catholic family members and friends, put your arm around them and say, it's okay, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're not. And if you don't evangelize them, you are not loving them, you're loving yourself. Because you just don't want to deal with the problem. They need the gospel. They don't need condescension or people calling them names. They need the gospel because they're not getting it in Rome. Amen? Let's pray real quick. Father, we we can thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to this church to, to study about you, to learn about you, to grow. And a lot of what we have heard today is hard to hear, it's hard to listen to, it's hard to teach. And it's hard because we know the truth, we understand the truth, we love the truth. And we don't want to leave here with our hearts embittered or angry or upset at Catholics. We want to leave here with hearts that are broken, that love them, that care for them. And we ask that you would open up our opportunities in our lives that we can evangelize our Catholic family members and friends, that we can present the gospel, that they could see Christ, that they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we ask that in this church your word would always be held up and that we would always hold to the true apostolic teaching as revealed in Scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.